There's an old story about a church where the conflict between a pastor and his congregation had become so bad that the elders were going to arrange to meet with the minister and ask him to leave. But the pastor refused that meeting. I'm the servant of Jesus, he said. When Jesus tells me to go, I'll leave. But until then, here I stay. So he did. Week by week, his congregation groaned through the services until finally, one Sunday morning, the minister announced that Jesus had given the word. He was moving to another church. The congregation's response They immediately rose to their feet to begin a hearty chorus of What a friend we have in Jesus. I mention this uh, not because this type of issue has yet arisen in my brief ministry with you, at least I hope it hasn't. But as we considered last week, personal politics can be an unfortunate reality in any situation and the result is often conflict. It needn't get as bad as it did for the American politician Dennis Cleary when he ran for a sixth term in the General Assembly of the state of Connecticut in 2002. Cleary had apparently fallen out with his siblings over the handling of their father's estate but he was still no doubt surprised when they took out newspaper ads and posted signs on their lawns supporting his main opponent. We're tired of Dennis, said one ad, are you too? Because we do sometimes get tired and we do sometimes get upset with each other, don't we? Even in the church. So what's the answer? Well, this morning's reading from Colossians has some important principles to share, I think, in our common quest to honour the reality of our unity, which already exists, and our solidarity in Christ. And they centre, for me, on the rules for relationships and the teaching on the power of prayer and community and communications that I'm going to highlight from it in my three main points today. When a little girl first heard the story of Snow White, she was reportedly so excited that she could hardly contain herself until she retold the fairy tale to her mother. Towards the end, after describing how Prince Charming had arrived on his beautiful white horse and kissed Snow White back to life, she asked, And you know what happened then? Yes, dear, the mum replied. They lived happily ever after. No, Susie corrected with a frown. They got married. In our modern gender-sensitive environment, it can take some guts to say anything substantial 
at all from the pulpit about relationships between the sexes. But the Apostle Paul has no obvious reservations in sharing with his readers what our NIV Bible translation describes in its heading as instructions for Christian households, instructions for Christian households, including husbands and wives, parents and children. And in those days, of course, in many households, masters and slaves. And I quote from chapter 3, verse 18 through 22, and chapter 4, verse 1, as we've already heard. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul has frequently been misunderstood in passages like this and two of the worst misconceptions, in my opinion, have been that the Apostle actively supports not only absolute male domination in marriage but even slavery as an institution. Yet, in my view, the evidence quite clearly suggests otherwise. Now there are different interpretations of the Apostles' teaching on marriage here and elsewhere in the New Testament. Some continue to lay strong emphasis on male headship and authority, while others favour a more egalitarian view. And a lot depends on how we understand the word submit in chapter 3 verse 18, which I personally read in a more mutual open sense than more traditional readings. Why do I read it that way? Well, I think it's crucial to remember that when Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, he uses a Greek verb in Colossians 3 verse 18 that he elsewhere employs to teach that all Christians, not just wives, have a mutual obligation to submit to one another. We all have a mutual obligation to submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Apostle begins his teaching on domestic relationships in Ephesians 5 verse 21. And that word has more to do with putting another person first, with considering another's needs and interests ahead of one's own than with issues of control or authority that we often get hung up on when we discuss this topic. A second reason why I favour a more egalitarian view is that Paul's injunction to wives is matched by a corresponding one to husbands in verse 19, to love their wives 
and not to be harsh with them. That may sound rather obvious. It may almost sound completely unremarkable in 21st century ears. But in a first century society where women were generally regarded as pieces of property with few rights of their own, this was actually quite a radical, even revolutionary teaching to tell husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. At the same time, even when he's addressing relationships between parents and children, it's difficult to cast Paul as some kind of old school disciplinarian for whom father always knows best. While he clearly counsels obedience from children, in verse 20, he also goes out of his way to tell fathers in particular not to embitter or exasperate their kids and so discourage them. And this is such important advice. It doesn't take years of pastoral experience of the kind I have to recognize that those who grow up in unduly authoritarian homes where parental discipline is overbearing can all too easily turn into angry adults with low self-esteem. The Apostle's advice to slaves in chapter 3 verses 22 to 25 is similarly balanced by a strong message to masters in chapter 4 verse 1 that they are to treat them fairly and to remember their own accountability before God for Paul slavery is simply a fact of life among the people he's addressing as it was generally in that time and place in the first century so he taught Christians involved in it how best to conduct themselves there's no need to conclude as many have done that the the apostle thinks that the institution of slavery is a good thing in and of itself he nowhere says that in the whole New Testament. In fact, earlier in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, Paul has clearly taught a much more foundational ethical principle of universal equality in Christ, whether slave or free. And he applies that even more broadly also to relationships between men and women in Galatians 3 verse 28, where he states that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle's main concern in all these verses about rules for relationships is not to argue for the inherent validity of particular social systems. It's to encourage believers to live well within them. And what are his major guiding principles for their conduct? They center on mutual obligation. They center on being accountable before God. Whatever you do, Paul says, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for people. It is the Lord Christ you are serving.
It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Which brings me to my second main point and the power of prayer. We all have different traditions when it comes to grace. I read about one family where the dad always insisted on giving thanks but then spent much of the rest of the meal time complaining about whatever was set before him. He was rather taken aback one day when his son asked him, Dad, does God hear us when we pray? Of course, he replied. He hears us every time. Then the boy thought about this for a while and came back with another question. Does God also hear everything else we say the rest of the time? Yes, son. Every word, the dad replied. And he felt some encouragement that his son was so curious about spiritual matters but his pride only came before a fall with the next question but dad what does God believe? what we say when we pray or what we say when we complain afterwards what does God believe? That's a crucial question in any area. And if we want to know the answer, the Bible is the best place to look. And what does God think about prayer in particular? According to the inspired words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4 verse 2 following, God finds it very, very important. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says in verse 2, being watchful and thankful. And he's particularly anxious that they should pray for him, not on this occasion for the sake of his health or his material well-being, nor for his spiritual growth or his relationship with God, although we learn from elsewhere in Scripture that these are all important prayer topics. No, the Apostle's special concern in verse 3 is for his ministry and for the preaching of the Gospel. And pray for us too, he asks, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, given Paul's situation in prison, It might have been quite natural, even understandable, had he been looking to be released, or perhaps be able to take things a little easier for a while. But such is his passion for the Gospel. Such is his desire to make the most of the opportunities that he has, that this actually seems the last thing on his mind. Instead, he's focused on reaching out And in verses 5 and 6, he says that his readers should be too. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity, the Apostle counsels. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And there's surely a word for us too here because we should all be looking for openings for the gospel wherever God places us. We may not be the next Billy Graham or Nicky Gumbel, but if anyone is that here, please let me know after the service. We may not get to preach in our local church, but God 
gives us all opportunities to share the good news about Jesus and to, to pray for others who do and our very best support as we seek to take them is the power of prayer itself. The power of prayer. Which brings me to my third and last header in verses 7 through 18 of Colossians 4 where we find such clear evidence of the importance of community and communications in Paul's understanding, Paul's practice of the Christian life. The story is told of a conflict counsellor who once received a phone call from a pastor who was also a chaplain at a Christian school. The minister and the school principal had seen their relationship deteriorate to the point where they could no longer communicate. So the counsellor spoke to both of them and said, before we get together, I want you to write down the major problems in your relationship. After the principal and the pastor had arrived at the first meeting, the counsellor asked them to read out their lists. The minister went first. I feel that the, the principal resents my presence in the school, he wrote. I would like to play a larger role, but I feel I can't. I'd especially like to be more involved in religious education, but I feel pushed out. Then came the principal's message. I feel that the pastor doesn't want to get involved in the school, he wrote. I can't understand why he feels this way, because we desperately need him, especially in religious education. In other words, both really wanted the same thing, but they thought they were at loggerheads because they hadn't been able to communicate with one another properly. And we can all struggle in this area, can't we? That's why the example of the someone like the Apostle Paul can be so inspiring. And in a passage like the last 12 verses of Colossians, we can truly see his rich gifts of personal communication in action. There he is, in a Roman jail, no less than 1,300 miles away from his readers in Colossae. But what's Paul doing in these verses? He's carefully and quite deliberately building community. As he shares news, sends greetings and offers instructions, naming no fewer than 11 different fellow Christians in the process. So he tells his readers about Tychicus and Onesimus in verses 7 through 9, who will be travelling with his letter. And he says why they should be taken seriously. He greets them on behalf of six other leaders, including Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, Justus, Luke and Demas in verses 10 through 14. And he communicates special greetings from Epaphras who would have been very important to them as the Colossian church's founder and to a woman named Nympha in verse 15 who seems to have hosted a house church in Laodicea, a clear example of women in leadership in the early church. Last but not least, in verses 16 through 18, the Apostle tells the Colossians 
that they're to share his letter with the Laodiceans and to read another letter in their possession which he probably also composed. He sends a special word of encouragement to a man named Archippus in verse 17 and he concludes with a personal signature before he signs off with calls to remember his imprisonment and to receive God's grace. Now, unless one has a strong historical interest in Paul's writings, in which case all these materials can be fascinating, it can be so easy to skip over a passage like Colossians 4 verse 7 following and see it as of little importance compared with earlier sections that contain such rich theology and ethical teaching. But that would be a pity. Because with all their personal detail, such verses are ample proof by their very nature of the importance the Apostle sets on nurturing, caring and vital fellowship in the church. We all know the dangers of negative communications in church life. And if we've been part of a Christian community for any length of time, most of us have probably suffered the consequences. I know I have. Over the years I've been called all kinds of things. And it's sometimes been quite painful. Gossip is frequently condemned in the Bible and Paul ranks it on at least two occasions alongside such sins as strife, Deceit, malice, quarrelling, jealousy, arrogance and disorder. Even alongside sexual immorality. Gossip can be insidious and it can be very dangerous to the health of Christian relationships. Yet in our concern to avoid it we should never forget the benefits of positive sharing which are very real when it comes to building community. That's clearly what we see Paul doing in Colossians 4. And that's one of the thoughts that I'd like to leave with you as we draw to a close. As he does elsewhere in this wonderful letter, in emphasising rules for relationships, in stressing the power of prayer and community and communications, Paul always leads us back to one person. He always brings us back to Christ. It's all for Jesus, for Paul, to quote the title of this sermon series. For it's Christ who unites us as Christians in the first place. It's Christ who makes prayer in his name possible. And it's Christ who is our ultimate community builder as he communicates the essence of God to humankind and as he imparts salvation to all who come to faith, making us part of the very body of Christ, drawn together in his name. We began by thinking about some of the sources and dangers of human conflict. We started this whole series by considering some of the temptations that we can face, as the Colossians did, to try to earn God's favour, or to try to win God's relationship through our own 
inevitably insufficient efforts. But what we have consistently found is that the only adequate answer to all our challenges, all our temptations, all our trials, lies in the person and work of Christ. For in Christ, Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 9 to 10, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And the wonderful truth is that we can know him, we can have faith in him, we can even be brought to fullness in Christ, who is not only the head of the church, but ultimately the head over every power and authority on earth. What a saviour, and what a gospel we have to share. Let's bow our heads.